This is The Uncharted Life with Jacob Lyles. Hello, everybody. How do you like that new intro? It's pretty sweet, huh? Like it said, this is The Uncharted Life podcast, and I am Jacob Lyles. Uh, And today I have a conversation with an old friend of mine, Matt English. We both graduated together in the class of 2005 from Wake Forest University, so we go back quite a ways. Matt and I talk about uh, parenting a child with autism, and we also talk about video games and how they've had an effect on our lives. This is the unedited version of this conversation. I also produced an edited version that jumps right to the part where Matt is talking about parenting because I thought that was the most powerful part and I'm experimenting with maybe um, cutting out some of the the witty repartee and going straight to the meat to see if people like that better. So let me know what you think. This is the unedited version. As always, if you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe to us on one of your favorite podcasting uh, discovery platforms such as the Apple Podcast app. For example, if you'd like to leave us a rating while you're on there, that also helps people find us. So here is my conversation with Matt English. Can I get the voice of Daniel Day-Lewis? Because I want the voice of Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm an oil man, you see. I drink your milkshake. I drink your blood. Oh, wait. Does he say that? Well, I don't know, but he's in There Will Be Blood, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, I haven't watched the movie, but I imagine, that movie is good. I imagine that there's drinking of blood in that movie. No. No, no drinking of blood in that movie. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes the. Uh, they they do say there will be blood, but I admit there's no promise of it's being imbibed. Are they talking about oil as like blood as like a metaphor for oil? <sighs> yeah. Okay. I think so. I mean, I'm going to be real candid with you. That movie was three, three and a half hours. Three, it, really? I think it was that long. But here's what is, here's why you can't really trust my opinion on that. I think I drank, word use intended, about an hour of that film, and then I engaged in a deep old man intermittent sleep because it was just not hitting my pipes in the way I needed it to. That didn't sound right. And... Um, <laughs> I did see the quote, though, which I wanted to see, which was the I drink your milkshake quote. And I liked that moment. But <laughs> the rest of it is a haze for me. I'm going to have to look up this uh, milkshake thing on YouTube, see if oh, I can get that clip. Do you know what it means? He's talking about how, like, when he, so he buys land next to your land oh, yeah. in the oil world, and then he drills a really deep hole, and then he goes under his land into your land and sops up your oil before you can sop it up. Ergo, he makes a really long straw and drinks your milkshake before you can drink your milkshake. That makes sense. Bizarrely, made more sense than I thought it was going to make. <laughs> yeah, it's actually not. Is that so? What is that? Is that a metaphor? Because it's actually rather literal. It, it's uh, ra- you know. Yeah, you know, it's a metaphor because you're you're like casting. He's not drinking the oil into the the world of the milkshake, mm-hmm. and then using the function of the milkshake to make a point. So I think that is metaphorical conversation. Yeah, and you're not you're not literally drinking it. You're also the verb itself is also yeah. You're yeah. you're storing it in your tankers. Yeah, right. Is that what you're saying? I'm not yeah. disagreeing with you. I just know so little about the oil trade. 
Yeah, you know, you store it. You think you store it in these like yeah in these giant tanks. Yeah, you can see some of them on uh, I forty. Uh, yeah. Coming out of Greensboro, yeah, they're like giant. I think they're gas tanks, but it's the same deal. Like, right, you'd put oil in that. Worst museum ever would be what that is. Yeah, they, how what stuff is stored in? Here's the here's the container for oil. Here's a, <laughs> here's a container for gas. Here is a container for concrete. Here's a container for uh, cereal that you don't want to get stale. Oh no, I want to see like that one. Those that's Tupperware cool. containers. Yeah, that's that, it. that rich people have where they buy their cereal and they put it in another container. Why would you do that? You were provided a container, sir. Because you are so <laughs> conscientious that you want every to optimize everything in your life, including like how your cereal is stored. Mm. I would the only valid argument I could see for that cereal storage method is the transparency of the container, so I can tell what level I am at, mm -hmm. at with cereal. So I know when my demand depletes to the point that I need to re-up re on cereal. But I mean, you can normally just do that by like reaching your hand in when you're un uncrinkling, unrolling the, the cereal wrapper. That's the plebeian method And then there. like feeling around and seeing how much you feel like is there. Right. I mean, and that's what, you have to reach your hand in anyway when you're picking out the best Lucky Charm marshmallows. So, oh gosh. Um, have you, you ever might actually well check the level that? while you're down there. Oh man. Oh man, that's like if you ever like have just a large bowl of like Lucky Charms. You know, you know what I really want, Matt? What? I want a device that will automatically filter the marshmallows out of Lucky Charms uh -huh. and the berries out of Captain Crunch. Like so you can have them? Or yeah, so, so you... I can have them. I think that's a short-term one. And then we'll. <laughs> <laughs> I think you reach the tipping point for that. Like you get that invention, and then you consume, and then I think in a matter of thirty minutes, you're like, I regret this immediately. <laughs> The ratio was admittedly not perfect, but I have I've I've well overshot the. Uh, you know, I, I used to belly. date someone who would like take the chocolate, uh, like flex off the top of cakes and cupcakes, like the shaved chocolate, mm -hmm. and she would just like ruin everything. Like to eat it? Yes, to eat it, uh, including like shared cakes, like someone's birthday cake. Like mm -hmm. at the office, she shared would cake. She would like. Fascist. She would like eat the, the chocolate shavings off the top when nobody was around because that was the good part. And then I'm so traumatized by that experience. I think yeah. I just have like this bitterness in me that I want to like inflict that on the rest of the world so they can feel that pain. And I think by eating everyone's marshmallows out of their lucky charms, <laughs> this is the way to do that. Oh, so your intent is not for this consumption and the enjoyment itself, but rather the oh, resulting I, lack also, of consumption elsewhere. Also, I just fantasize about having a bowl full of Lucky Charms marshmallows. You know, how good that'll be. What and a, you're right. I mean, what a I'm good world you live. I mean, that is an attainable fantasy. <laughs> but I don't want to have to filter them myself, so I want to build mm. a device or maybe pay like a, some sort of high school student that whose labor is cheap under the table mm -hmm. uh, illegally. To pick the lucky charm. <laughs> I love that you were hiring illegal to, to pick the lucky well, charm. You know, I mean, I'd say more of an in informal. Yeah. You know, I, an I, informal. Yeah. I, I may have, may or may not have worked, you know, helping family members for pay, like to do right. odd jobs around things for cheap when yeah. I was like ten years old and. I may or may not have violated a labor law, but God, yeah. did I want five dollars? I'm really see the way you phrase that. I'm super curious if you did or not. Just the may or I'm, may not. I, I may, me for a may or may not have. 
I just think of, I keep thinking about that first guy you mentioned who's doing the uh, you hired him to do the, the Lucky Charms filtering, yeah. and I'm picturing him like later in his career and they're like first job and he's like, you know, sorting marshmallows for just a guy I met at Starbucks, <laughs> and they're like, wow, so why did you take that job? And like, and just you know, cause I, I have to think that that makes them think you have rash judgment at that point, right? Well, I, th I think like the thing is like five dollars is a lot of money when you don't have a lot of money. Like when I was a kid, five dollars was a tenth of a video game. Yeah, and um, it's still a tenth of a video game. Yeah, remarkably, a little, little bit under. Yeah, and um, how how else are you supposed to make up a tenth of a video game? <sighs> that is the operant question. Like my other pri my primary income at the time was finding quarters on the ground. Nice <laughs> and. Which was rare. Pennies were more common. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, earning five bucks. So maybe quarters. maybe earning five bucks doing some theoretical work for a theoretical family member, like, you know, <laughs> may have been pretty awesome. Was it, though? We, well, I, it, <laughs> it, might, it, might have been. it might have been. Might have been. Um, so, How Shakespearean. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about Smash? Yeah, we can. I'm, I was just really enjoying that riff, to be honest no, with you. No, it was you. great. I really liked that. We could, we, could, we could ground it in something now. Yeah. What should we ground it in? Um, let's talk about games. Yeah, let's talk about games. What kind? Video or board or both? Mm. Well, video games were pretty awesome when I was a kid. I remember in my last Christmas before... My parents converted to a silly religion that doesn't have Christmas. Mm. Uh, we uh, we got a we got a Nintendo, so it was just it was just long. We had Christmas just long enough to uh, to you know to to get the big prize, which was the the NES. The NES. Uh, yeah, I think my dad and my uncle uh, split that, and like they both chipped in some money and, and bought that for me. And um, I think you know video, video games just had big piece of my life. I I played with my brother a lot. Yeah, same. And um, later, my sister. Yeah. Um, mostly my brother. Um, my sister wasn't quite as into him, but we once later down the line when we got an N sixty four, my sister would play Mario Kart with us, and she was pretty good. Um, and then there was also just a lot of like honing my own skill, and it felt like a it felt like a growing thing. Like it felt yeah. like it felt like a like piece a, of my growth. Yeah. I think for me it was a lot what you just mentioned the uh, the communal aspect of it. Like um, that's my first memory is sitting down there with the two controllers and playing. I, I I know we had an NES and I remember that, but my memories are more Super Nintendo related. I definitely and your comments about religion reminded me of this. I have a drawing somewhere <laughs> where um, I was really mad that my parents were making me go to church instead of play more Nintendo. Mm. So I have a drawing where um, I told them I was worshiping Nintendo now, the Lord of <laughs> Nintendo. I'm sure your parents loved it. Oh, yeah, they loved it, yeah. And, and I drew everyone in church, and God was in the background, and he was screaming, shut up, go play Nintendo, mm. which was convenient, right? I was like, see, that's what he wants. And Nintendo was in there, too. I think it was just a... Uh, anthropomorphic NES like with you know 
spawn like eyes like in the comic where he's got the triangles and he actually was not very benevolent looking in spite no. of, <laughs> though, though i afforded though you, him my th worship but you was, might think that a god made from the nes would be benevolent he, he would he yeah, would he's about like entertainment that. right yeah and what does nintendo mean i think it was named after nintendo was like a card game initially and japan meant like joy cards or something like that i don't know hmm but NES stands for Nintendo Entertainment System. I right, and they named it that because apparently the Atari was flopping and they didn't want it to be considered a game system. They wanted it to be an entertainment system. So like a living room kind of centerpiece rather than just like a gamer thing. Which I think that supposedly worked as far as a marketing campaign. But it's weird how people do that, like how Jobs did that with the PC. You know, he was like, once you get it in people's home, they'll realize it's it's usefulness for you, which I always thought was interesting. That's kind of what happened with Nintendo. Call it what you want, but once people put their hands on it, they'll make it what it is. There's got to be some kind of Greek name for that or something. I don't know. There should be. The Telos, right? Mm. That's the Telos. It's sort of auto-realized. It can't be impeded. Yeah, the, the vi you, you get the vision of the Telos. Yes. And you put your Nintendo on it, and um, it'll lead you hmm. forward to the television. Hey, tele tele vision, Telos vision. I wonder if those words are related. Well, certainly. Yeah, probably. I mean, there's only so many words, right? You right. Can't, can't Eventually, they have to be. So yeah, I I remember. I don't know why I did this. I was really close to my older brother, and I used to. He was super competitive. And like we would play like Street Fighter 2. And I remember enjoying it so much that, oh man, if he ever hears this, he's gonna be like, this is a lie, you're, you're just bullshit. But I used to, he would get really mad if he lost like two or three in a row. And I was super good with Chun-Li. I'd just get that lightning kick up to get you in the corner and it was just yeah, done. Yeah, it, the Chiefs tactics worked really well Chiefs in, in family, uh, family games. Yeah, um, and so I would actually intentionally lose after a little bit in order to keep it going so everybody was happy because he would get so inflamed with it that it was like i don't know he just couldn't pull it back and then once he bought one one or two then he could yeah and i think as an adult he says now he sometimes won't play certain things because he's like overly competitive i don't know what drives that you know um so jordan one of jordan peterson's riffs is he talks about how rats uh like to play together but if the bigger rat doesn't let the little rat, rat win like at least at like about one third of the time the little rat will like stop wanting to play hmm. so you gotta let people win sometimes yeah it's kind of like uh why nobody likes the nba anymore everybody's just packing all the best players on one team and it's not fun if, if it's just like an absolute domination my best game was probably Mario Kart ba Battle Mode. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the balloons on Super Nintendo? Yeah, Super Nintendo was, I was pretty good. I also played a lot of the N64 version. Um, if I go to a bar that has Battle Mode set up nowadays, which is rare, but occasionally you'll find like someone with like classic games, I just I could play yeah. all night and never have to step because it's just like drilled into my fingers. Um, like. A, you never know how good you are when you're a kid and you're like you're only playing with your like yeah. i only played with my siblings like sometimes one or two friends um and then but i think i'm actually like pretty good at mario kart 
That's an interesting phenomenon you bring up because that did change everything when they kind of made it where you could get on the internet and play other people. Yeah, ranked ladders and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You kind of went from like caring about your neighborhood. We can move outside if you want to. Um, uh, so we were talking about we were talking about video games. Um, is that still a topic we want to continue on? Sure. Yes. Or you're talking about how the internet changed everything. Yeah, I feel like it used to be the case are we, um, where, and I don't know, if, I guess you could say this is good and bad. I think it's mostly bad, though. I think it's mostly bad. So before it was like you had your group. It was kind of like playing pickup basketball with a couple of guys, right? You enjoyed it because it was like, you, I mean, unless you happened to be in the same neighborhood as like LeBron James, you probably were at least moderately competitive with your friends. And so you had the enjoyment of like real competition and advancement and camaraderie. But the internet made it so like you can play against anyone, right? And so I think some people are challenged by the idea of, I don't know, maybe not challenged. Maybe it just requires you have a better understanding of your purpose to know that it's okay to be to advance from like number thirteen million eight hundred seventy thousand to thirteen million five hundred thousand, right? But I don't know if that resonates well with the human experience. Yeah, there's there's uh I, I do enjoy online gaming. I, I got like kind of okay at StarCraft two. Yeah, I remember that. Um and that was really fun. Uh but like I, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't making friends, mm. and there's something, there's something different about, there's something different about it. Like I wonder if there's just like, like making status, making your status in the hierarchy more objective, is maybe like uh, reduces the overall amount of satisfaction people can feel, mm. because before that everybody can have an over estimate of their own ability yeah. you just feel like yeah I win sometimes against my friends I probably beat them most of the time but really you win like right. a third of the time yeah. and then like you just but you're not counting and now it's like you know it's it's, a, it's calculated for you and yeah. shown. so I think that's a huge piece of it and then I think it's sort of forcing on you the one aspect of the definition of what the game is for you know what I mean like I think that Maybe games are supposed to be for actually us sharing an experience, right? And enjoying our time together. But instead, I no longer see the other person, number one. So we're not co-located. Uh, I don't think I need to speak too much to the nature or the quality of the community of online interactions, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're fairly toxic. And then so then it becomes only about the win and the ranking kind of system. Which used to be like, I imagine most people, even with their friends, didn't ever say, You're the best, I'm second, he's third. I mean, I'm. I'm Maybe, might, right? Maybe. Okay, I'm really right? competitive. Uh, it's, a, it's a character flaw. But at least nobody would know, right? It was not for sure, right? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of. Yeah, I could, I could talk, talk smack all I want, but. There was people, an, people didn't have to agree with me. There was a healthy element of ambiguity, right? I mean. Yeah, and it was smack talking a little bit too. And I think that does speak to 
a topic that is, I think, one thing we were talking about the other day that is, I don't know, super interesting. It's, if we're not going to be the best, right, and we're probably not going to be. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. Like, very, very no, high probably. No, you don't want to be the best. You know, and maybe you don't even want to be the because best. Because if you look at the kind of life that it takes to be the best at a competitive video game, like, you have to drill that thing eight to ten hours a day, yeah. like, six days a week, minimum, and... Um, I think the game's gonna lose most of its flavor by then. Yeah. Like it's like gum that you chew too much, you know? Yeah. Perfect analogy. Yeah. Eventually you're just chewing your own teeth, right? I'd, I'd guess. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it feels to be like Faker. Um, oh, yeah. who, who nice is, reference. <laughs> but um, like maybe if you're like the very best, like the, the glory makes up for it. But surely if you're in the top 100, like, you're suffering just as much as Faker does in, in training and not right. not having that many teenage girls scream your name. Right. No, I think that's it. And, you know, the truth is that that is the vast majority of people, right? And so, I don't know, you look at... I, have, I keep hearing people say, that it's different than, like, football. It's different than, like, basketball. And my gut says that that's true. Even though semantically and logically, I'm like, it's not. But then I finally thought about, it is different, and it is because of what we just mentioned. They are still co-located when you're younger and you're playing those other sports, so they have incidental like relationships and community that are coming from that. And that's like what I was talking about the other day. You know, I think that... There's a lot of other really cool things about basketball and football too. Like, yeah. like the rules aren't like quite nailed down, so you're like constantly negotiating them with your friends, and you're learning how to do that. And um, yep. instead of it being mechanized, like right. within the structure of the game, um, you get exercise at the same time that you that you do them. Definitely. Which which video games do work out? Yeah. I think your like your coordination and your reflexes. Yeah. yeah. But it, they're not. They're, you're you're physically suffering. Like your body isn't gonna isn't gonna become more healthy. No. Like while you do that, and you're not gaining health points. That's that's for sure. Yeah, you're losing HP. You're losing HP. Your max HP bar is going down, <laughs> or at least it's stagnating, yeah. right? Yeah. Certainly not going up. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I think you're getting at it. Like, yeah, the negotiate. That's an a what's the word I'm looking for that's an integral life skill to go we don't know what the definition of the rule is here let's compromise and have a conversation and incorporate each other's skill sets and define what it's going to be right so that we can hopefully have max enjoyment for everybody here it's a very economy way of talking about that isn't yeah it? max utility you, you're, you're an econ major yes yeah yes the um and, and like when someone says it's a foul, and someone someone else says it's not a foul, and you mm -hmm. have to and you have to hash that out. Yeah, like, yeah. Like there's a lot of just like social skills being learned, um, and yeah. like e even in the parts that are unpleasant, where you're like fighting with some. Mostly the parts where it's unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about the aspect you're bringing up. It might be the most important part. It's probably the part that gave me the most anxiety as a kid because I didn't have my social skills on lock, but. You know, I was probably learning something that's. I, I probably was. I probably was learning something that's useful to me now. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of the key things that a lot of 
kids. I say kids, but I mean like probably people in the 18 to 25 range. Can I call them kids now? I'm 35. Yeah, I, I call them kids. I feel allowed to. I think we can call them uh, larva. Larva, yes. <laughs> or uh, what are the zer zerglings, right? Zerglings, yeah. Yeah, the hive. I mean, they're not larva, but yeah, pupa maybe. <laughs> Well, it speaks to, well, what's the primary criticism we always hear, at least, and I feel like I've definitely seen this, of, although I think we're on the cusp of millennials, but the primary criticism we hear about millennials in the workplace, right? They require explicit direction and growth. Like, they want to know how they're growing and where they are. Well, what teaches you that? Well, video games. That's a video game logic, right? I'm, I'm level five. I know I am because I did da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'm not ripping on video games. As you well know, I love video games. But that gray nuance of like, ugh, am I going to get what I want? Ugh, did I achieve what the boss wanted? Like, should I just figure out what to do next? Like, that's the stuff that's, like, important in a job, right? Yeah, like the ability to... So the, the thing that video games give you with regards to progress is... Um, is it makes it very clear and explicit. So I, like yeah. there's this word called legibility, which um, is basically about making, like whether things are clear and explicit. And um, like the, the thing is that in real, in, in life, most of the time, like progress isn't legible to right. you or it has to, it takes a lot of work to figure out how much you've progressed. And, and if, if, you can, if you can provide an environment for people where their progress is legible, that's actually really hard and valuable to do. That's basically yeah. uh, what someone that's managing a large group of people is trying to do. Yes. Um, it's like a key management skill. But it doesn't happen automatically. Oh, no, yeah, right. It's like you're programming the, the, the work world for other people yeah. when you're doing that. You're building the world in which they're going to level up, right? Yeah. And you need them to be able to see it. Man, that's so important too. And you know what else it does? And now I'm going, I'm going all over them. I'm, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Riffing. I'm, I'm ADD in it here. So yeah, I'm, we're going to riff on this for a bit, and then have another topic. But okay, I might let's see where we go. I might be able to take it to that topic. Oh, I know you're really good at that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate this kind of you say. I want to get get to uh, fatherhood. Okay, so this is going there a little okay, bit. Okay, cool. Um, so. Just giving you the direction to riff in and see if you can connect I like the dots. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as the father of a child with special needs, what terrifies me about that rubric, is that the right word? I think it is, is that it's sort of ingraining a generation to the idea that the the way to achieve things and be happy is extremely finite, it's very legible, like you said. Um, and, and I think that's limiting. I think that's a, a myopia. It's a self-imposed myopia, but it's like, um, you know, it looks like doing this as a woman or this as a man or this as a relationship or, you know what I mean? Like it, you get in that habit of being Achievements? Like, yeah, achievements and unlocking achievements, right? And so for me, one of the most powerful lessons I learned as a dad was that one, oh man, I mean, you don't even know that those things are ingrained. You know, like when you have a child, you are bringing into that conversation a, a just bevy of latent expectations that you probably don't even know are there, right? Uh, a huge amount of them come from like Madison Avenue and the whole uh, 
what's it, Norman Rockwell? Did he do those paintings with like the family eating the? I always get those names wrong. I think Norman Rockwell is. See the one who did like some, the, the. I think it's a good guess. <laughs> right, I'm Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. That's who okay. I wanted, right? The American Family paintings with the Thanksgiving dinner and the idyllic setting, right? And the two car garage and the college degree, and uh, you are definitely bringing those in. And there is a uh, that is a that is a a fucking awful thing. <laughs> I mean, you think about that. I mean, you, you're not even in the world yet, and somebody's got a list of things you need to do, right? And they're big things. Probably a lot of them are out of your control, you being the child. And, uh, oof, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to thinking of that from the other side and, like, how much I hate for my parents to, like, decide my life for me already. Yeah. Um, but... Like hearing you speak about it makes me realize that, like I, I do have those expectations um, myself, and so I'd probably would have some. I'd like there'd be some way that I'd be imposing that on a kid, even oh, yeah. if even if I wasn't doing it explicitly. Right, and I think it's fine to. I think it's not a healthy spot to sort of. Do you like look at it, like just to stare at it, like have a macabre fascination with your own expectation and feel guilty about it? And maybe that's just because I do that as being raised Catholic, and so I'm like, don't do that, guys. But um, I think that it is healthy, though, that you even are at the place where you kind of can go, I, I know those are probably there, right? And I think that's a great starting point because, I mean, you kind of got to be looking for them. I mean, I'll just give you some that I, I didn't even know were there. So I, both my parents talked significantly about, well, when I was 18, my parents gave me $50 and put me in the armed forces and I was on my own, right? Well, think about what that instills in you. And then you have a child who, un, by no fault of their own, probably will never be independent, right? So what what is it? What do you have to untangle internally about what that says about their value? Because what it doesn't mean is that they're less valuable. That's bullshit. I mean, that's my thing, right? That's what I've been taught that I got to be like, no, mm -mm, I don't believe that, or rather, I have a latent belief of that somehow, right? But I've got to like mm, just like rip that out of there because I think that's horrible. That's a horrible belief. What was that one quote from, uh, it was actually in Game of Thrones, I think it was Mira Reed, and she said, just because someone needs help all their life doesn't mean they're not worth helping, right? I, and I think that's a powerful thought. I mean, because, I'm kind of sorry, I'm like rambling. No, this is great. <laughs> uh, I think, that was that referring to um, Bran? Yes. And how Hodor was helping him, and which is another beautiful story. I don't want to like spoiler alert, maybe, but uh, yeah, if people haven't seen <laughs> yeah, it's on you. by now, it's on you, right? I, yeah, spoiler. Yeah, Hodor. Spoiler alert: we could we could be talking about Game of Thrones spoilers yeah, here. Maybe we reference Hodor and what happens to him. But um, I was going. Where was I going with that? Oh yeah, the value aspect of that. Like um, it isn't just because they're valuable and you need to give them your help and that's like good and you're a good it's not that it's not that i mean it is that but it's also and maybe more importantly like 
you need to learn what it's like to do something for someone who who needs you in that way i mean there's something you're getting out of that that in a lot of ways is more profound than what you're giving them right a lot of people can give them water food shelter and a place love and my son in particular my oldest who's nonverbal and autistic is actually pretty easy to love but He's definitely giving you something much more rare than what you're giving him. I mean, an authentic reaction to your personhood, like, I mean, people tell me all the time. We had one teacher who ran out of the school crying and was like, you know, I struggle with depression and your son makes me not depressed on a daily basis. He changes my perspective. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of ability to step outside yourself and ignore yourself is like, it's sort of golden. I mean, it's not easy to do, <laughs> especially not for me, right? I don't know. And as somebody who, that's probably why I feel weird saying this because there's like a genetic element to that, but I think it contributed to when I was a drinker and a, an alcoholic. I mean, I am still an alcoholic. I just haven't drank for seven years. Um, there's an aspect of that that you're trying to obtain through alcohol, right? If I could just silence that fucking voice that tells me all yeah. about the things I'm doing and failing and, and, you know, all my, yeah, what everybody's thinking about me and it's, yeah. Just to put a fine point and underline, uh, yeah. what I think you're talking about is when your son, who's nonverbal or autistic, like he's like lacking social awareness in, in some way, and you've talked about how he can be just really authentic because of that. Yeah. Like yes. really touch people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yes, thank you. That sounds... Don't let me jump gaps without well, filling in the details. Well, you were kind of implying it there. But, yeah. And I, and I sort of could follow you because we've talked before about it, but I just wanted to make it explicit. No, no, please do that. <laughs> I do have a tendency to do that. Just you've, you've, just told, you've told me about like some really beautiful moments where oh, yeah. he just very, is very unselfconscious and honest with people in a way that touches them. Yeah, like, you know, and I guess I'll tell the story we were talking about the other day. It's kind of like, you know, if you go to like uh, New York City, particularly, and I don't want to pick on New York, but any major city, right? Um, there's like a hardness that hits your heart where you're just like, I cannot engage the, the pain of people around me, right? I don't yeah. have the... As a resident of San Francisco, like I, I know that. Right, right. So Luke is t two things. One, he lives entirely in the moment, completely present and only present, which is a total divergent from you or I. I mean, I don't mean to speak for you, but certainly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. I'm not. I'm not in the moment. <laughs> he is right there. Right. He is yeah. in that moment. And so that. And then secondly, he does not give a flying fuck about what you think about what he's doing. Right. He. I mean, he. And he probably cares about you, but he's not wondering if you think his clothing is a particular too drab or not, or whether you think he's like normcore or if he's like a hipster or a nerd. Right. He's not thinking about any of that. Or he's not even thinking about if he hurt your feelings or maybe he's, <laughs> he does care about people but not in the way you know that anxiety where maybe you'll leave you or i might think about an interaction we have with someone five years ago where we said something stupid and then feel that feeling all over again right yeah. so that kind of like agita or it's not there and so in that vein when we were at, we were at cyworks which is a children's um, museum in uh winston-salem 
and we're just walking around. And I remember the impulse I had. I saw this woman in the corner with her just hands and her head in her hands. And she was clearly weeping. I mean, trying to hide it a little bit, but it was a pretty hard weep. Um, and she wasn't entirely hidden. So part of me was like, maybe she wants someone to talk to her or like ask her what's going on or see if she's okay. And even as I'm thinking about that, just full speed, he's, he runs over to her and, and just like moves her hands aside and just touches her face and presses his little forehead to hers and just smiles at her and made his noise that he made, bee, like his happy noise, but quietly. <laughs> and uh, the look on her face was, uh, I don't think I could, ex I don't think I could describe it. It was like uh, somebody actually gave enough of a shit to just step into that, even if they weren't able to do. And I think, geez, man, most of the time, isn't that what we want? Do we really want them to tell us the answer? Probably not. We probably just want somebody to step into it, right? Yeah. Someone to, someone to be there with us. Yeah. Someone to see our pain and, 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 yeah. and accept it and not make it, like, let it be okay and, and not try to make it yes. go away. Yes, right. Not tell you why it's not a valid pain, right? Not tell you how their pain is like yours and they get it, right? None of that. Just presence, right? And, man, I, I tell you, in, in a world where um, I don't know what percent of us are taking narcotics to make ourselves feel less depressed or this and that, that has to be, cons I, I don't, I wonder at times which of us is disabled in a way. I mean, because that is a, to not be burdened with that is a powerful thing. I mean, I know there are, I mean, I'm not saying that autism it's very much, and I can tell you about those two, has its very hard difficulties. I mean, he's not independent and will not be, right? Um, but I don't even want, I wonder if that even is a bad thing anymore. I mean, uh, the American idea of independence is, speaking of which, my dog is not independent here. No. And wants to be outside of this, so All right. do that. And hey, I wonder how much that has harmed us too you know this idea that like i mean the most important thing is that you are self-sufficient right yeah. or at least one of them so i think for a lot of people that aren't parents yet or think of becoming parents um like the idea of having a child with special needs is like one of the scariest yeah. things like sure you know there's some percentage chance and it's like pretty scary um yeah so <laughs> I don't know. yeah i i think i know where you're what you're asking me i don't um, know what i'm asking exactly but yeah like feel... what's like it probably before you had children mm -hmm. um like was that something you thought about a little i remember one time and just this is a good note to like we should all be kind of careful i don't know but I mean, I had a conversation with someone, and I'm not going to name them, but I, I, it, it stuck out in my mind where I, we were talking about that topic, and I remember them saying, like, if they were to have a child with special needs, they, they immediately said, well, that would be the worst, right? That would be the worst possible thing. So that hurts. I mean, even thinking about that now, that hurts. But I know what they meant. And the irony of it all is that, or maybe this is not irony, I always get that wrong, 
but the in, the interesting aspect of it is that um, what they were thinking of was true, and it wasn't the worst at all, right? I mean, the problem is that what th their idea of the worst was to not have uh, the most freedom possible, right? And their view of freedom isn't was to leisure time, uh, agency of choice, right? I can do what I want, I say what I do. And man, so first off, obviously children are contrary to that, even typical children. Yeah, you'll and have less freedom. You will have less freedom. You will have less uh, control of what your day looks like, right? Um, and uh, that's going to be doubly so with a child with special needs, right? But to that I would say, I mean, so that was true. They were, they were right about that. You know, I think th what they were wrong about was that that is the worst. I think the irony, again, I keep you, <laughs> I, I, what I'm trying to say is that which is hard is not bad. And I think what they were trying to say is to suffer is bad. I mean, like, uh, I was reading something the other day that said the, that was the number one reason that this current generation didn't want to have children, they didn't want to reduce their leisure time. Um, and there's an aspect of me that's like, you know, you should exercise prudence about when you take on responsibility. I mean, that's valid. But, um, you know, you can only do that so much before you end up not doing anything worthwhile, right? Yeah. Um, that's kind of what I'm getting at is uh, the best people in society probably don't think about that. Or there's probably a direct... <laughs> relationship between how little you think about that and how good a life you lead, I would say, probably, right? Well, that's scary to think about, Matt, because <laughs> I have yeah, thought about that a lot. Well, we all do. I've definitely lived a life like trying to, uh, sometimes I've, I've avoided potential responsibilities to increase my optionality. Like, Yeah, and I don't mean to be judgmental. I think I judge me for, I think my life is worse off for it. Hmm. Like, I have had a lot of leisure time, and I can't say, when I when I don't have leisure time, I think about how awesome it'll be, And but when I have lots of it, um, a lot of times I struggle to put it to good use. Yeah, I mean, look at retirees, right? Mm -hmm. That's like their primary complaint. I got nothing to do. I have no time, right? Or I have not I have no time. I lack purposeful time, right? And I mean, that's what you'll have in abundance, is <laughs> purposeful time, right? You have somebody who who needs you, and I'm not saying that you should produce a human being to be needed, however, it is infinitely rewarding to to help someone who needs you in that way, right? Isn't that what, in a way, life is about? I mean, is there anything better than serving people you love? Isn't that the point? A I, little bit? I, I dig it. Yeah, yeah, I mean... I mean, I don't, I I don't have too. as much of it in my life, but I do dig it. And you obviously, from our conversations, like you seek it out. And I mean, yeah. And I think that is a thing that's going to yield benefit. And it doesn't always look the same for everybody, you know? I mean, for me, it looks like this. Yeah. And it's awesome, but. I think the pain, like when people are afraid of a life with a special needs child, there's like the, the lack of freedom is part of it. And then mm -hmm. I think the other bit of pain is like, the deep, like missing out on your expectations, which you kind of already talked about. Like, yeah. Like I expected, it's always hard when you have expectations about something and then 
it goes a different way. Yeah, I mean, expectations are the enemy of authenticity, right? I would say it that way. Like, it, you think about what they do to experiences on a day-to-day -day basis, right? What you bring into a movie is a simple example. Your reviews you've read, you know, the ideas you have about what it's going to be, they have an enormous influence on your perception of the experience itself. They constantly just water down and poison the, the actual experience, right? Yeah, one, one of my common topics that I talk about is um, like the danger of becoming a connoisseur of too many things. Yeah. Because to become a connoisseur is to like have all these preconceived ideas about what is good. Yeah, yeah. Like I did it for for coffee. I'm a I'm a I'm kind of a coffee connoisseur. And now sure. when I come to North Carolina to visit my folks, like I sort of like just have lots of negative experiences looking for a cappuccino that's as good as a cappuccino I get in San Francisco. And um, and so I sort of consciously limit my like I have a brain that wants to become a connoisseur of like all these different things. And I sort of consciously limit myself sometimes and say, like, I'm not going to go looking for the best of, of, of X because cause if I do that in too much of my life, then I have this layer of expectations over it where I'm constantly can only be happy if I get the best. And, right. And it's like a, it's enough of a pain in the ass that I only am happy with the best cappuccino. Yeah. And maybe if I didn't have that expectation, I could just enjoy like a Starbucks cappuccino every now and then. And, and let me ask you this question. This is an honest question. I have no like gotcha behind it. But um, do you feel like what if you ended up having that cappuccino that all of your experience had to, or knowledge really your expectations told you that this is a bad cappuccino, and then you have it? but you actually think it's really, really good. What does that do to your mind or your perception of your own taste? I think it's really hard to have that experience. Um, yeah, like do you feel like you would deny it almost or? I mean, I can imagine that if I didn't have as many expectations, like there could just be uh, like very context dependent, like it's just like the right time where like I'm feeling like I need a cappuccino, and also like, I have I have nostalgia around maybe like Starbucks cappuccinos, where like I used to like them before I figured out what a good cappuccino tasted like. Like I can imagine like this confluence of mood with like nostalgia and like sipping mm. on a Starbucks cappuccino and just enjoying it. Right. Um, it could happen, but I would need to to let go. Uh, and I don't know if I could do this of these automatic judgments that start coming in right like as i'm sipping on that cappuccino yeah and i think you're actually and you're 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 nailing what i was trying to get at i think i didn't even, that was really helpful i mean like so you would have to work to eliminate to basically to let it be what it is right yeah right you'd have to do that work to untangle your own i mean and that's what i'm talking about but only at a deeper, more hidden level with children, right? I mean, and I think that sometimes we, I mean, you kind of have to mourn that a little bit and, and bury that because it requires exactly what you were just describing. If you just tell yourself, if you just lie to yourself and say, this is what I wanted, right? Because I mean, if I'm gonna be real honest with you, obviously nobody wants their child to have a disability because it brings them hardship and it's just not a natural want, right? Mm -hmm. 
So you have to kind of bring that to the table and work through that and go, I see these things and I see that they're dead, right? They're lost. I have to weep. This <laughs> is like, a, I don't know, an elegy to expectation or something like that, right? And then I think, you know, you can rise from that and breed a new thing, a new view of what it is to be a dad or what it is to <laughs> live a fulfilling life. Like, because, you know, it's so powerful and to think about how so many people's like box of what a fulfilling life is, is not available to Luke. I mean, my oldest son, he will not, that is not a thing he can attain. It's just not there. So I, I would kind of wonder if you talk to them and you'd say, well, what, do, what does that mean for that person? And have you considered that person, right? And I mean, honestly, I, would, I don't think I would tell you that I had until I had to, right? Um, so I don't think anybody should like feel bad about that, but I think it's a worthwhile consideration. It's what makes diversity actually important, right? Is by actually having those people around, having diversity of interaction with other types of human beings, you begin to think about, oh, well, my view doesn't allow for this person to be that, right? To live the life I think one should live. And maybe I should question that. Maybe I should change my view, right? Yeah. I can tell how much you love your son. Thanks. <laughs> I do. I do. It's um I love my son so much and I love what he's done to my stupid views. <laughs> you know, I just yeah, I imagine there has been a journey of you coming to your current understanding of like what it means to be a person. Yeah. And and what yeah. it means to be a worthwhile person. Yeah. And um like it sounds like I'm getting a sense of like some like internal remodeling you've done right. of your concepts and your expectations for people um, through this experience. Yeah, that's well said. It's more like a, what do they call it? It's like those flip it shows, right? You just got to go in and take like a sledgehammer to some of that stuff. I mean, and you know, you don't, you get that from that, you know, your parents and your just your life and all that stuff. You know, we both went to Wake Forest and, um, you know, a lot of it is created there. And there's a lot of people coming out of there with like a lot of life expectations. And my parents were super big on like going to a good school and that's great. Right. But, um, that was one I had to like knock out. He probably won't go to college. I mean, won't. I don't know, you know, I, so now we're going to get to something that I think is extremely interesting. And it's mm. probably, it might be the hardest thing in the world. I think it is. Okay. So I just had that moment where I said to you, he's not going to go to college, right? Yeah. And I think that's probably true, right? Yeah. However, and this is true for all parents, but I think it's uh, doubly so for people with children with disabilities or special needs, right? So I must accept that truth, or rather accept the probability of that truth, while still not limiting him, right? Because sure, there's a, and by the way, do me a solid, anybody who listens to this, please do not walk up to anybody with children with special needs and tell them, or with autism in particular, because it's so varied in the way it manifests, 
please don't tell them about that guy you knew who had severe autism and then 10 years later was air quotes normal and uh, you know is now this this and that please just don't tell that story just i mean if you, if anything comes from this conversation keep that story to yourself please <laughs> Maybe we should have a, a segment where we talk about all the things like not to oh do uh, around parents with a, like that with a special needs child in public. Um, wow. I wonder if there is like a list <laughs> bigger oh, than yeah. just that one. And what to do? I mean, yeah. any but yeah, that could be a thing for sure. Um, and some of those things might be hard to instill in people because I think there is something, or maybe it's not. Anyway. That that duality has to be the most difficult duality in the world because there's two things that happens in your heart on either of those sides, right? Um, there is a, a good sort of protection that you give your heart when you say, this person is like my, my most loved human. I mean, like this guy is my favorite. My boy's like, you know, and it is just the highs and the lows are wild. Um, and I don't want to lord over them uh, expectations. I don't want to, them to feel like I'm thinking about how they are insufficient or uh, not who they are supposed to be, okay? So that's good, that's a big want, right? It's a good one. And the other one is I also want them to be able to do what they want to do and can do. I want to press them, not press, but you know what I mean, like, get them to their potential so that they can live the life they want to live. But those two things are, are absolute diametric opposites in the position of the heart. Yeah. One of them is... It's like the acceptance versus... Yes. It's sort of like the the mother energy and the father energy. Yes. Like the, ex the accepting, loving, unconditional love versus like the coach who's yes. going to like help you achieve your potential and push you to do it. And you must be both. Mm -hmm. So that is the thing that is asked of you. Uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> I mean, that is a... And I think this is really good advice or conversation for, like, every parent hmm. of every child. So. It's, like, I think everybody needs to walk that line, I would I'd guess. I think so. I would agree with you. I mean, just all you have to think about is, like, not to make everybody have, like, a guilt moment, but I imagine everyone can think about what their parents expected of them. I, which means that your kids know, right? If you think a moment, think about your parents, you're like, yeah, I know. And you know where they fell in both those kind of categories, right? I imagine all of us tend in one direction or the other a little bit and try and do both somewhat. Um, I don't know if one of them is better than the other. If I was going to pick, I would probably lean towards the acceptance one, as that is better, I would say. But I'm not sure, because... Sometimes the acceptance one is selected just because it's easier, right? And that is not a good thing. That is a selfish thing. Ironically, again, man, I'm using it wrong, I know, but just, just use the word. Just, just, just say the word ironically, I'm just Matt. Gonna, just, I'm just gonna. Hey, just caveat. I do what I want with the word ironically, just, guys. Just, just say I'm it. Al, I'm the Alanis Morissette of this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. You can be Alanis, and, and I'll be <laughs> the someone that's not Alanis. Dave Coulier. No, too weird. Jacob Dylan. Jacob. Who is? Okay, anyway. He was the lead singer of the Wallflowers. Oh yeah. And Bob, Bob Dylan's son. son. Yeah. Now that song's playing. And, and I actually prefer uh, the Wallflowers to Bob Dylan. Me too. 
I think he's a better voice. Anyway, yeah, he does. Um, oh yeah, so th there's an element to which um, sometimes, you know, acceptance is just not trying, right? Like, I, I love... Like when, I, you, when you see someone suffering and mm -hmm. stuck, like... Yeah, yeah, or, or, or I'll give you an example. Um, uh, in the autism community. So a lot of uh, kids with autism have very rigid diet habits, right? Um, so you could say to yourself, and I knew someone who did this, uh, he'll only eat green M&Ms and Cheetos. This is a real story. And I was talking to this person, and, um, you know, I probably, or I can't remember if it was me or Sarah. It was probably Sarah, or I don't know, but might have overstepped their bounds in being like, well, you can't just feed them. Green M&Ms and Cheetos. I mean, that's kind of borderline child abuse. This is a human being cannot be sustained on those things. Even though Cheetos is apparently the most engineered food in the world, but it's not engineered for nutrition, apparently. Um, and uh, I think that their point was that is the way he is, and that's who he is, right? And so I don't want to, I just, you know, accept that, right? But a little bit, it's like, are you accepting that though? Or is it just he's very, very hard and you have to put in a lot of work and hours and time to make him eat things he needs to eat, you know? And we had to go through that. It was hard. I mean, we just wanted chicken nuggets. That's why we want chicken nuggets, right? But you can't just eat chicken nuggets. Man, that would be great if you could. I like them a lot, right? But, um,. You have to be both of those things again. You've got to be accepting, but also be like, no, I, I think this is a thing you need to do, unfortunately. And I'm going to have to press you to widen that. That, uh, I don't know what that one is. It's like an anxiety or a texture thing, or, you know, just a fixation, obsession. But that is hard. That is hard. Anybody who's ever helped someone through an addiction probably understands what we're talking about here, you know, or through... Uh, maybe a very hard relationship, right? Just kind of like, mm, you get kind of laser focused on it and the way to love someone might be a little bit to kind of help them along through that period, you know? But that's all con that's all contextual. I mean, you'd have to look at it, but I don't know. Yeah, when, when you love, when you really love someone and care about them, there's, it's it's not, your, your interactions with them aren't to do the easiest thing all the mm. time, but there's, but you're caring for their welfare mm. and especially when you're an adult and they're a child and you, you yes. your, your picture of the world is just so much more nuanced and complex than theirs is. Like you have a, yeah. a duty to make them upset sometimes for their own good or yeah. in, in, the, in, the, the, in the course of doing something in their own good. And that is very hard. This is very hard. You were absolutely right. Yeah, I can't imagine how hard it is. That sounds really hard. <laughs> it's pretty tough. Um, <laughs> Definitely the hardest thing I've ever, I've ever done. I mean, there's um, there's the food one. We did that, and then I remember when Luke was first diagnosed with autism, and he was kind of two and a half, and he would like, I don't know, you get in those modes where you sort of, it's not a fantasy, but whatever a negative fantasy is, you know, like where you sort of drill down to the worst possible thing. Yeah, it's like a catastrophic thinking or. Like a death spiral kind of thing, yeah. you know. He would go to the top of the stairs and then get on his knees and squint his eyes and just look at the light, right? And for like an hour. I mean, 
and you would just be like, is this, is this what our relationship will look like, right? I mean, am I just going to have this person here who's in another world um, and someone I want to know? It's like having the, the Pandora's box of like the thing you most want to open is completely sealed off to you, right? That's the terror of it. I love this thing. I want to know it, but I can't. I fear it will be closed off. And so then through years of like, uh, we went into debt for behavioral therapy. We're finally out of that now, which is an amazing thing. <laughs> After years of that, like that is not a fear I have at all anymore. Like he's not as verbal as you and I, and his, his vocabulary is probably limited to like a, a two, three hundred words and there are full sentences that are like phrases, like Chick-fil-A is mastered to the max, or I want fries or take a bath. But um, there's also an element to which we are still engaged in such a powerful way. I mean, it's not all just words. I mean, we all know this. It's sort of something we all secretly know that we don't always say, but I mean, there's so much communication going on. It's funny because like our relationship is so verbal. Mm -hmm or my relationship with a lot of my friends is so verbal. Yeah. Has it changed like how you think of your relationship oh, yeah. with other people? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you said it because I think it's a beautiful thought. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've known me for years and I am a very verbal processing type person and uh, I think it has m completely altered the way I listen to people, the way I understand people. Um, the other day, I mean, just to give another maybe more understandable example, but I'll come back to that one. Is, uh, did you, you knew Jamie Dean in college, right? I'm not sure. Well, his name is inconsequential in this context. Well, his name reminds me of the sausages. Oh, yeah. We poor, have, poor guy. Yeah. Well, and the actor, right? Oh, yeah. James Dean. Anyway, he is blind and... Uh, just to give you a simple example that I think is pretty relatable. So I will go out to coffee with him. Um, and it's kind of actually applicable here too because we're in an audio only medium, right? So, you know, you talk to somebody and you listen to them and you kind of nod, right? As you're hearing them. But then you realize as I'm talking to him, I'm like, oh, he doesn't know I'm nodding at all, right? He has no clue that I'm like adamantly listening, but giving all these like visual cues right but that's useless to him so then i sort of learned to like i would modify the way i did that i would make certain noises or say yep and just sort of do that more often when having conversation with him because the point i'm making is that it, it teaches you when you interact with somebody with a disability like that or autism like you learn to adapt yourself to another human being's need of communication, which is, I think that's an extremely valuable lesson and skill, right? I mean, because for so long, especially you knowing me in college, I think you could attest to this, I had one mode and I mean, like, it was that or nothing. And if you didn't get it, then I didn't really want to deal with that. Um, and I've had to learn that in like profound ways. I mean, just the ways he touches my face or the way he looks at me or grabs my hand and moves me. I can tell like the nuances of his movements, the facial expressions. 
um, you just sort of learn to listen with everything other than your ears or even your ears but not for words right and you really do absorb like what are they saying in this communication class they always say like 80 percent of communication is nonverbal, and you're like mm, i don't know about that but yeah but in a human level like on a one-on-one -on -one, sure not in books but i mean you and i here or me and him there definitely is true right because like in that moment in that story earlier right did he communicate something to that woman crying in the absolutely and did she know what he was saying i have no doubt she understood what the message was right uh way better than if i walked over and was like hey i see that you're upset and i wanted to see if you need anything right i don't know if she would really believe that right but he made himself vulnerable and risk took a risk and went in right so then she, that's what's communicated. I'm in. I'm also part of your spectacle for you, to be in your spectacle. Yeah, who's going to walk up to a stranger um, in a public context and put your hands on their face without saying anything? Right. And, and put your head against theirs. It's like, who's going to do that? It's extremely risky, right? It's very risky. And what do you think they'll do? Well, that's right. That, that's you the have, whole point. Yeah, right, you have no that's, clue. That's why we don't do stuff like right, that. Right, right. You might be totally rejected or completely accepted in a beautiful moment. But um, and I think what's wild is I think if somebody did that to you, even the way they did it, their posture, their the way they moved to you, the way they touched. I mean, all of that would be laden, loaded, laden with meaning. That's the word I wanted. Right. You would sense all of that. I think we do. I think we do. It's why the internet is so uh, insufficient for communication. As much as I love it, right? Yeah. It's made me. Um, it makes me think about like how uncomfortable I often am around people with a disability. Mm. And I think it's because they're unpredictable, right? Well, and it's also asking me to change my preferred yeah, mode of communication. Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Like I don't even want to talk to people to some extent. You know, I challenge my, I notice and challenge my own sort of narcissism, but like I don't even want to talk to people that are like just have different interests from mm -hmm. me. Like yeah, just, right. that, just that didn't go to get as much education as I did because I'm like, oh, they won't be able to yeah. keep up. Sure. And, um, me and too. I have to challenge that. And then, and I think, I think that's kind of the same, the same thing that holds me back from people. With disabilities, I'm like, oh, I might have to change how I, mm -hmm. how I interact, and and you're right, and it's hard. It is hard, and it's uncomfortable. Yeah, and it would probably make me a better communicator. And I, do, I have no doubt it would. Yeah, I have no doubt it would. Get and, me uh, off my high horse a bit. Learn me a little humility. It's a it's a pro. I mean, to your, everything you just said, I still do in moment, and I mean in many moments, right? I mean, yeah. so like I just say that as a. A, a journey it's a journey it's an ongoing and the fact that you're even saying like to the that self-challenging is the really the most important piece this is the most important piece because there's it's not something that i think the best goals have no uh achievement unlocked point they're never complete right and so the, that is an excellent goal to say i would will like to challenge my internal monologue about not risking myself in interactions with unpredictable people i think it probably yields pretty awesome moments in life yeah probably some weird ones too right i've, I've heard very 
amazing things about there's this man named Jean Vanier. I've who, heard that name. Who's a, he's a he was a Catholic priest that he was he became very upset about how mentally disabled people were being treated. Oh, and I he, do. Yes. And he started um, a home for them called L'Arche, which is uh, French for the Ark. Um, uh huh. And um, I've heard, and, and so he started these communities that are sort of built around the the idea of the humanity of people with mental disabilities. And I've heard that being in his presence, he's one of the best nonverbal communicators mm. probably that has ever lived or certainly living now. Wow. Uh, because with a lot of the people he works with, he, they can't communicate their needs. Mm -hmm. um, and he is working with them, he's been working with them constantly for 50 years right. or something on, on that magnitude. And I've heard that. Um, if there's uh, uh, one of their residents who's throwing a fit and all the nurses can't figure out what's going on, he, yeah. he, he'll walk over and like, just put his hands on them. and hmm. like, He knows how to touch them in a way that will just calm them down because, because he's done it uh, time and time again. And I imagine, like I heard it, there's an interview with him on the On Being podcast and like his voice is very gentle. Hmm. Um, and I just imagine him having this very, very gentle uh, uh, persona that, from descriptions, that sounds like very Christ-like. Mm. And I'm like, okay, how do you how do you get to be that? You yeah. get to be that by walking the path he walked. Mm -hmm. Yep, taking the risk again and again and again. And I also, you know, you tell that story, and I think to myself, are, are we so different? Or are we just walled up, right? I mean, if you were having a really hard moment, maybe that would also be amazing for you, right? It would be. Right, right. I mean, I think the difference is that, like, I can just, like, I can maybe, like, handle it better or, like, tuck mm -hmm. it away so I can exactly. still do other things. Uh, but I still have, I have a lot of moments where, where I'm unhappy. And it yeah. would be really nice if I was around someone who could notice that and, and give me that kind of presence. Hmm. You got me thinking too. I often wonder how often a marital argument is, I mean, we've had so many arguments that not a single one of the words was had an ounce of meaning in it. It was all, there was all some other narrative unspoken on either side or something unrequited or unnoticed that was the source the whole time and in an, and in, and in an ironic way uh, the, the actual words are impeding the communication right they're blocking it whereas maybe even just walking over and like looking them in the eye and, and like hugging them or pausing and putting your hands on the shoulders of them you know and being like okay you know what I mean like not even words per se but like I don't know. I'm kind of having that revelation now of how many times I just like talk myself in a freaking circle without saying a, th a thing, you know? Yeah. Like, even with just simple stuff, like, it's wild when you're married long enough where the other person will be like, no, no, you're just hungry. And you're like, no, I feel the things I'm saying and it's very complicated and intelligent and that's why. And then, you know, slowly as you're like going on your rant, they kind of like slip you a cracker and you're like eating it. And then, you're, okay, I was just hungry. 
but probably you don't see it until hours later after you've gone scorched earth on some stupid semantic point that is meaningless. But maybe it's just me. Maybe. Do you maybe. get really cranky when you're hungry, Matt? Oh, uh, yeah. Tired is more than anything else. The fatigue. I mean, that is an aspect of parenting that is... It's tough. Yeah, probably the toughest in my opinion. Like, when you know, when we are in college, I, I laugh at how I thought I was busy then. Like, it was, it's, it's like a joke level of busy. I'm just like, how did I even... I mean, I had... I had that conversation with a guy I worked with who was younger, just out of college, and he was just getting on my nerves a little bit, if I'm going to be honest, talking about how he felt like he never had time to do anything, and I kind of lost it a bit. Well, not super bad, but I was like, how many hours in a day? And, and my criteria for this is where you can just go and say, I'm going to do this thing, and you need you don't need to tell anyone. You don't need to check on anyone. You don't need to make sure someone is in a, in a good state, good place, safe. How many hours in a given day? And, and, I'm, and I'm counting sleeping hours too, okay? So those do count, right? And he was like, well, I'm working for eight, so like, you know, like 16. I'm like, I have maybe one, right? On an average day and many days zero, right? It's like I'm expected to be here at the office and then I need to get home as quickly as possible. <laughs> And then I'm doing that, and I'm like, watch. And even when we were talking at the beginning of this interview, or in a podcast, I don't know what it's called. But I was, you know, side-checking on Luke, right? And thinking about how he's doing. And now that Sarah's here and upstairs, I can kind of let that go a bit because I've transferred that ownership. Mm -hmm. But that is such a wild difference. I mean, you know, we just had like oodles of time in a given day. The freedom-loving side of my brain is like really intimidated and scared when he hears it. Oh, that. I mean, but you, you know, you, you're way more adaptable than you give yourself credit for. Yeah. Because I'll give you the flip side of that argument if you want to hear it. Or not an argument, but that point. So there are other nights where I'm like, I have some friends who are, you know, not really engaged in a community they're not in a significant relationship they live on their own um and i i think about that i this is gonna sound really bleak i should just be honest though i'll be honest yeah i think about the idea of coming home and that that same sentence i said a moment ago like that if i did those things that no one would care no one would be impeded by my absence or presence. No one would notice if I was, you know, in a rough moment or... And that kind of makes me like, I almost get short of breath thinking about that. Like that crushing loneliness. I think about, I've done that for a lot of years. And hmm. when I, I was living by myself in a one bedroom apartment before, I met my last girlfriend and we started dating and we I moved in with her like not so long after we started dating and uh -huh. before that I moved in with a, a in a group home of people oh yeah but um, but it uh, which is very common in San Francisco because you, you can't afford the rent on your own so oh, adults right. like later in, in, in life like even in their 30s or 40s are going to be living with friends um, which has its upsides it turns out but but I went from sure like being alone a lot to being around her a lot and at first I resented it mm. 
um, because I, I was missing like my freedom. Like I had this person who wanted, who was just like constantly in my awareness. And, uh, and eventually I sort of got used to it and it got to the point where I'm like, okay, this is like sort of interchangeable. Like I can tolerate this. Like this is kind of interchangeable with my life before when mm -hmm. I would get home and like sort of just have lots of time to, to think and to do whatever I wanted. Um, but then when, when I lost that relationship, I realized that the, those two states are not interchangeable. Like I actually was a lot happier when I had that other person in my life. Mm -hmm. And like going back to having infinite free time whenever I want it, it's a really big burden. And, um, and it's not quite as, I don't know what I was looking back on, on when I was resenting the loss of free time when I first got in that relationship because uh, I have it again and it's, I, I, don't, I don't know why I had that rosy view of it because it's not so rosy. I think it's a natural, um, I don't, I think it's a natural perspective. Like, I don't think you should beat yourself up for it. I think we all kind of sort of think that. It's like, we think if the traffic lights weren't there, I could go as fast as I wanted and where I wanted. And not even that the other obvious problem with that, right, is that I'm going to hit all the other cars. But, um, yeah, I think that you you obviously, though, like as we talk about it a lot in the last couple, well, the last two days, right? Yeah. You clearly understand it, though, which I think is huge. Like, I think that what's happening in that that's so hard and different is that we, we need uh, structure and community. We need it. I think it's almost as critical to the human condition as, like, water and food. I think it's pretty high up there. Like, I, like we, we were talking about working from home, right? And I was like, the reason I feel like I can work from home now is because I know that that structure is present, right? I cannot escape it. So I, I, it's like both uh, a constraint, but it's also creating a type of freedom and productivity. It's weird, right? It's like order through, I don't know, freedom through order in some bizarre way. Maybe in, that's in the, the order that you have, you're talking about at home? Yeah, so like when I'm working from home and I have... I start at like 8.30 and then I know that the kids will be back from school at 3.30 and then the our nanny, who is awesome, will leave at 5.30. So I know once, once 3.30 comes around, I probably should have stopped doing the kind of work that requires total silence. So I kind of schedule that around that. Once 5.30 comes around, I know I should probably be done with everything unless it's like hypercritical or... It's something that I just need to be on call for or ready for, right? So that's the that's the kind of yeah, it's the imposed structure I'm talking about, and it's still present when I'm in the office because I know well some of that is, but it it's just that it it creates that natural imposition, which isn't a bad thing. I don't think that's necessarily it yeah. can be well, frustrating. I've, I've heard a lot of parents talk about how um, people are afraid. Uh, especially like very ambitious people are afraid that if they have kids like they'll lose some productivity and what they what a lot of parents talk about is how their eight to five has become a lot more efficient uh -huh. um, like they've they've cut out all those little um, like internet breaks that they struggled for years to cut out and they couldn't um, right. but yeah. but then when they have a kid it's like you don't get to work after hours um, if you want to be a good parent 
so uh, th like the pressure, the limitations, like changing how they work and so they can work more consistently. And it turns out that for a lot of people, they actually don't lose any productivity. They just like use their hours better. I, can, I find that super easy to believe. That's the only thing, that, that is the thing that makes it like, um, hearing people talk about that makes it um, less scary for me to want to become a parent because I, oh, yeah. because I think, because I, 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 I am a champion at procrastinating and uh, wasting time at work future employers listening to this take note so I mean it's amazing how much of our structure comes from just imposing the appropriate context you know like yeah that's really well said I'm thinking about it from my aspect like even with the time with my kids right like if they're here and I'm watching them I even sometimes do a better job caring for them this is sort of analogous, but maybe not directly, but like, so sometimes Sarah will go to the gym and then I'm with both the boys on my own versus like we're both here, right? So sometimes when she goes to the gym, I have a much better time with them because, not because I'm a better parent without Sarah, but rather when she's here, there's the same kind of like natural lean on the other person, right? Whereas when she's gone, I'm like, no, I must be completely present and active and watching and attentive. And then as a result, I have better time with them when the real golden nugget, if you can get it, is how to figure out. And I think you do kind of learn this. It's kind of a skill you can, you can grow with is how to, when she's here, to be like, I'm going to be that person, right? It's sort of like a... a if people did that, communism would work, right? It's the reason it doesn't work, right? If, 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 she, if she and I both were here and we were both like, I'm going to do the most of the parenting work, right? And we both want to parent, but if we were honestly like, I'm going to try and take as much load off her as possible, and she was thinking that about me, it would produce like the best scenario possible. Yeah. But there's just a human aspect to where we both want to do a good job, but sometimes we can't help but be like but why aren't you doing that thing right or and so it's kind of like you're saying with the free time in the sense of like you know it's there right so why don't i just do it during then and do this now or it's just so hard to, to force that discipline right yeah because you know if we don't like to do things that don't have a result or a purpose right so in your head you're like but I do have that time later, right? Yeah. And if I do it later, it's the same result. Yeah, I can't. I can't like arbitrarily impose the rule on myself because I, it's super easy to cheat. Right. Uh, and, and as I get older, I'm getting better at arbitrarily imposing rules on myself, but it's like a skill that is difficult. Sure. And I think it's just a matter of, again, going back to the purpose thing. Well, one, it's a little bit of habit, but I think it's also... And I don't mean to talk like I know these things. I feel like I know something about them, but it's also that you're you're knowing now that it does have value. Like what you're saying, you've learned that you're like, no, it's not just the same, right? It is a value for me to make myself do it always at this time. So then you get better at it because you you're not thinking anymore that it's like a non-value-added task. It actually has value to it, and a lot even, right? It's like even trying to like, I'm probably going to try and do some writing after we hang out and do this. And I need to do that to myself with that because 
I want, I even wrote on a paper a thousand words a week, right? But because I want to impose that structure because I now know in my life, I almost must have that. If it's not there, things will not occur, right? They just won't. I just don't think we do that, you know? I definitely don't, at least. Sounds like you're in that boat too. Yeah, my self-management has never been my strong suit. Uh, although I'm, it's something that I'm starting to get a little bit optimistic about. Like I think I've found out a mindset that's sort of helping me hmm. on it. Uh, which a friend of mine, he says that basically, he just put it in a way that, that really emotionally struck home to me, where he said, habits, um, I was talking with him about just trying to suffer less. Like hmm. my, my day-to-day experience is a lot of, is pretty high on the existential angst level. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm just like kind of freaking out at being alive and existing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like higher than I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking that of setting a goal for myself and I, 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 I judge it on a one to 10 scale. Mm-hmm. So like one would be like perfectly at peace uh, with whatever happens. And 10 is like, I need to kill someone. Um, right. Like right. maybe me, maybe someone else, but something needs to die. Someone will die. Yeah. And like, like the worst during my last breakup, maybe I got up to like a 9.5. Like I was, mm. I was pretty, uh, it was not n- a nice time for, for me or anybody um, in my care. Mm. If I had, like I, I was, I was very hostile. Um, and like nowadays I'd say my average is maybe like, like a six um, like it's still, it doesn't feel very nice. So I said, and some days I get down to like a four, mm-hmm. which is good for me. Um, so I, I talked to my friend and I said, I've, I've been thinking of just like trying to set as a goal for myself, like lowering my level of suffering, like just not, and not trying to be happy, but lowering my level of suffering, mm. uh, so I can get that number down. And he said, yeah, I focused on that for four months once and it was the second most important thing I've done in my life hmm. I'm like I liked that validation I'm like mm-hmm. okay so it's important cool something I can do cool and then I, then I'm like wait second most important thing you've ever done in your life what's the first and he said habits hmm. and I'm like and I, it, I'm kind of like really uh, and he said yeah Basically, eighty percent of what you do in, in your life, roughly, is on habit. Yeah, and that's basically your life. Yeah, um, it's not the vacations you take or the exceptional things. Like, like most of your life is the things you you get, mm-hmm. you, you you do by habit. And so, actually, the thing is, the most important thing that he's ever changed, he's ever made in his life, was learning the meta skill of changing his habits. Yeah, and he says. If you can get like, if you can change a habit, and it gets you one percent more time, that's one percent more time, in your entire Forever. life. Right. Yeah. Right. And that can make a huge difference. Programmer uh, understands that, right? Yeah. So you start doing those one percent things, and it and it really adds up. Hmm. And he said the only way that he knows of to effectively do this mm-hmm. is to to gain this meta skill of changing your habits, and 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 hearing him talk about this. First of all, like I have huge anxiety around like self-management and habit formation because I've tried so hard yeah. to, to do it and I just failed uh, time and time again. I identify with ADHD label um, as well. So they said the only way to do it is to pick one habit at a time yeah. and like just commit to changing that. And, and you don't do a lot, 
Yeah, you're always but, little. But just commit to one. Just commit to it, and, and it's okay if you fail, and and you like regress, but but you must be committed, and you must succeed no matter what the cost. Hmm. And and after you get that one locked down, then you can do a second one. Yep. And as you go along, like you'll get better. And so like right now, the one habit I'm working on is journaling every day. Hmm. And I've failed at that so many times. It's like kind of it's kind of anxiety producing for me to try to journal every day because it's not the first time I've told myself I journal every day. Right. Um, oh yeah, that's always a hard narrative to fight. Yeah. You tried this before. But but it's like it's not that hard of one. Right. And I'm letting myself half ass it saying like as long as I get some words on the paper right. with the date above it. Oh. And like I'll normally write something more, but as long as I get something down, then it counts. Yeah. And, and so far it's been it's, it's it's been like five days but it's been pretty hard and, it, and it's been pretty hard like I'm on vacation um, like I, I could have all these excuses I could tell you I could always tell you these excuses there's always they're always there doing, but, yeah. I'm, but I'm sticking to it that's awesome yeah. and, and I'm gonna see if I can get it I'm a firm believer in what you just described too I'm currently in the process of doing that with exercising and I'm finally I'm over the hump I call it so I had like three years ago I was like about 25 pounds lighter and was running a lot and then I would get hurt and then that would break my cycle and then I would not do it anymore and just like you're saying it's that's like the, the killer right the moment you're not doing it you don't keep doing it and now finally I'm at I'm on about a six or seven week trend of doing it at least two or three or most of the weeks it's been four times a week this week I've done two and even hearing you talk about that, maybe be like, you need to go run, you need to go run, you need to go run. But um, I think what understanding what you said did for me, because I didn't see that that way the first time I lost the weight. So I kept pushing myself to I don't know what, right? Trying to get faster, leaner, I don't know. But this time, my objective is what you just described. My objective is to continue the habit, right? And that's why I think I'm not getting hurt. So now when I'm running and I feel like a tinge or something, I'm like, no, slow down. Because your goal is to be able to do this later this week, right? So if you push it now, that's not going to be worthwhile. You're going to be able, not be able to do it again later. And man, it is extremely true what you're saying. It's, and it does have that domino effect, man. It really does. But it's super hard. Super hard, and I think the other piece that we're taught that I would go to to what you're saying is like the reason that parenting does a lot of what we're talking about is because, like your friend is saying, it's very hard to do it yourself to impose that medical skill, right? So, the other way to make the habit change is just to live in a context where you must, you cannot do the other thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, that that helps. Like, if you've got to quit smoking, if you're on the moon, you're going to quit smoking. There's no cigarettes, you know? Win. It's not as good as learning what you're talking about, but I imagine it probably helps. I really want to try to quit caffeine before I'm, I'm doing an oh, eight-day wilderness yes. wilderness uh, survival retreat in oh. Alaska at the end of July. Uh, one of the things you can do when you have no responsibilities, you might as well take advantage of the time. Yeah, uh, no, you should. And uh, I want to quit caffeine before I do that, but uh, if I don't, then I'll definitely quit caffeine while I'm there because uh, we're surviving completely from the wilderness with like just a knife and like building our own shelter and everything and hunting our own food. So, unless there's like Dang. coffee trees in Alaska, <laughs> yeah, then I'm gonna be going without. There might be, I don't know. I really don't think there are, Dang. given what I know about coffee, right. 
Uh, I know little. So, I mean, so I will be getting off of caffeine this month, one way or another. <laughs> there, my, as much as I'm not an advocate, at least for myself, of alcohol, I am the inverse so of caffeine. I, I, I'm a huge fan. I'm um. There's things I notice with caffeine that I didn't notice when I was a big user of it hmm. that were a problem for me um, and that now I advise people about. Hmm. One thing is I used to have problems Wait, with stress. Wait, is this going to make me stop drinking Maybe. caffeine? Maybe. I don't know if I want to hear it then, but well, I'll listen. Or just, just, oh, just consider all okay. parts of the right. issue. Uh, one is like I've had trouble with stress at various points in my life. Mm. Like I've had like when I was an investment banker, oh, I, had, wow, yeah. I had I had chest pains, and mm. I went to the doctor. I like you know I'm 25, and the doctor's like, yeah, you're you're really it's you're not nothing wrong with your heart. You're 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 stressed. And um, what I've discovered in the periods where I've gotten off of caffeine is when I get stressed and I'm not drinking caffeine, I get focused. Because caffeine causes your body to release adrenaline, yeah, and getting stressed causes your body to release adrenaline, right? And when you have both of those things going on, yeah, it can like turn up the system too much. But if you only have one going on, right, like, your body sort of naturally focuses, yeah, uh, like the you, you get your natural stress response and it's okay, versus getting your natural stress response and it building on top of Frenetic. the stress response that you've already artificially induced, yeah. and it becoming too much. So that's something that that's cool about getting off of caffeine. Although I'm I'm currently caffeine addicted, so yes. uh, t- don't don't. Uh, there's a no. no this boo. is not a current thing. Um, the other thing I noticed was I just slept better. Oh, well, that's yeah. Sure. And, and a lot of people, especially soda drinkers, where they like don't count the caffeine. Right. Um, they'll say, like, oh, I don't sleep that well at night. And I'm like, when's the last time you have caffeine in the day? And they'll say, yeah, I have my last cup of coffee at noon. And I'm like, do you drink soda? And they're like, oh. Right. Like, like it actually has an effect. And when I was a big caffeine drinker in college and, and universe and uh, grad school, I would just have some nights where I didn't sleep. And I didn't know why. Yeah. I'm like, oh, they're just like some nights you sleep and some nights you don't. And now I realize the nights I didn't sleep, I would at like 11 o'clock, I'd have a diet Dr. Pepper and play like Dota. Oh my gosh! And then you know, by the time I stopped at like one, um, like I just couldn't sleep because the, oh, yeah. the caffeine was going through me. Maybe some adrenaline from the Dota. Dude, I will say I played. I got into League of Legends for a while, which is basically I did Dota. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and man, I I still can drink caffeine up to like nine, ten p.m. and go to sleep, but not if I play that game. If I play that for like an hour or two, I'm I might just be up through the whole night. It just sort of I don't know. It jacks me up. When whenever I play a two point five D game for a long period of time, like the Dota or like StarCraft, where you have like you know this um this kind of slanted photo three yeah. D world that you're looking down on. When I close, if I play it for a few hours and I close my eyes to try to sleep, um, I actually still see the world like animated. Like I just see characters running around and yeah, like my brain is me too. That's weird. Yeah. And you can't let it go, right? You can't stop thinking about it? No, it's like my visual cortex is literally yeah, it's producing that image. Yeah, I do that too. That's weird. That's and, and most of the time I'm unsuccessful at sleeping with that. No, it's not easy at all. Yeah. It doesn't work. It also just gets just so amped. I don't know. Oh, man, it's the best. It is a great feeling when it's happening. Okay, <laughs> man, I mean, it's... Like when you win a close StarCraft oh, match. Yeah. 
it's just it's like awesome. like your your testosterone levels are probably just through the roof. Like you're like you just won like a war or something. Like your side just won a war, and you're it's oh yeah, it feels just like that's that, that that's that circuitry in your brain. Yeah, I lived, I remember that with League of Legends where I would if I if I kind of like managed to just outskill someone like where it was like a 1v1 in the lane or something and I would be poking and like you know coming back and forth and then do something risky but then like over like through skill basically get out of the risk I'd put myself in and win that would be like my adrenaline would just skyrocket at that point you know like you do something that really you should lose in that fight at that point but you basically, because you overmatch them, and you're either a maneuverability or something that, yeah. Now there was you, also, you guess where they're going to fire their their yeah, skill, and you zig you, out of the way, and then or you stun them, you load them up with like two of the little things. Mm -hmm. What do they call those marks with cannon? And then they think they've got you, and then you're just like, and you hit it, stun them in just the right spot, and they just like, had a like range. right where you, you you see them like. They're, they're firing uh, animation triggering like you stun them then and, right, yeah. and you, you kill their skill and then oh, yes. and then you get just far enough away and here's like a skill shot cue you know the range one where like they think they're going to come out and get one more hit on you but you lead their position to where it falls right where they're going and then they die and then you're just like mm. yeah good feeling man but eight out of ten times, you just get nerfed or just yeah. get obliterated because you jumped the tower, and it's like that was stupid. But that other two times, you're like, it feels oh! really good. Makes it all worth it. It does feel kind of worth it, even though it's not. Maybe that's why my friends were always like, "Dude, stop, like diving." Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was just too much of a mental reward for me to hit that wall. Yeah, the reward's so high that if it just works sometimes, like, worth like you feel me, like it's all apparently. worth it, but. Objectively, if you're trying to win the game, wasn't great for the team. <laughs> yeah, it needs to work over fifty percent of the time. You work well, um, and even or even oh, never mind. I'm not getting into that. Do you um? <laughs> do you ever have a problem with? I mean, I feel like we're like at the length where I should wrap up. Okay. Um, it's just my brand. My brand's like sixty no, to ninety that, minutes. I think that's probably. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, do you ever have a problem with video game addiction where you like cut back or? Like, what's your your thoughts about like where video games fit in your life? Man, uh, so that sort of falls into the same conversation of earlier, where I think what happened was when I started working on my game, and then with the kids, like you start to not—I don't know—you want something that actually makes something for one. Which I love video games, but generally they don't do that, right? You can't leave with a product that you have or something you can share, and. Um, the other thing is like you you get such a premium on sleep right that you cannot have that day we just described like that that looks like hell the next day if that happens to me because they're going to get up at 5 30 and they still need all the things they need and you still got to be engaged so like you do that enough times i don't know a lot of men still kind of stay in that cycle but i felt like i i probably now play what I would consider an extremely healthy amount of video games, like in the neighborhood of maybe three to five hours a week is max. And most weeks, there are definitely many weeks that pass where it just is zero without thinking about it. It's probably never like anymore, like even above 10. 
in a whole week, which kind of maths out. And that only happens if like my brothers will happen to buy the same game and then we'll get on like Google Hangouts chat and play it together. And then at that point even I would say, I'm actually, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a good thing, right? You're kind of getting to catch up and do something together. And so it's the ones that I, like, like we're talking about, like where, geez, I wasn't even that good at uh, either of those games, StarCraft 2 or League of Legends. I got close to gold with League of Legends and like... What was your highest rank in StarCraft 2? Like, I think I got almost gold. I was mostly silver. Wasn't that good. Because I wouldn't... You know why? Why? Um, and I didn't play League of Legends nearly as much, but I was still rising when I was gold in League of Legends. And I realized the difference for me is at least the way my brain is. Uh, Stark, I'm a very, very talented micro player and a very not talented macro player. Hmm. So it's like League of Legends is almost like removing macro. I'm probably opposite. My older brother is also the opposite. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm a much better StarCraft player than, than a League of Legends player. And Andrew is too. Yeah. And I would say that, in, just like you are pointing out as well, like in StarCraft 2, you cannot usually out micro your macro. It's the inverse almost always, right? Yeah. I mean, so. I think that was why I just and I refused I don't know why but I would never just like learn a build order and a counter build order and you kind of got to do that stuff right I still probably should I don't know that I, I learned it I just watched so many pro games that sure um, <laughs> it's just kind of like I knew all the all the strats yeah and in league it's like uh, as opposed to rock, paper, scissors of like Zerg, Protoss, um, humans, although they don't quite, you know, rock, paper, scissors. But my point being, you you can't, it's not a hard counter from champion to champion because there's like a 200 of them or so, right? So that actually works in my favor because of my struggle with that. Being able to do that, it's less important in the other context, right? If, if, if I, though, build like... I don't even, I'm trying to even remember what the counters are, but if I build um, a bunch of zealots, right, and then you build those flying zergling things, I mean, there's that's just a hard counter, right? Yeah, mutalist, yeah. Yeah, there's no... Yep, zealots aren't going to do anything against mutalist, except you could uh, rush their base with the zealots and right, try right. to, like, get enough economic value to, to make them worth it. But in League, like, even though that champion might be, like, the best champion against my champion, it's usually not just like a like that like uh, you can't do anything right because in starcraft if you built wrong you know it doesn't matter how good i am with zealots right i'm screwed right or positioning all that other stuff those are my weak points in games i would say i used to love the zerg v zerg, v zerg matchup just because mm. they had the exact same tools i had and it was just all about skill yeah and right. it was all about like Scouting and guessing what the other person was doing, controlling my units, and, um, and especially the probably the way I won the most was by like noticing when they were doing an inefficient strategy, uh -huh. and and which they would they would try to get away with it by just like relying on me to like not attack. Right. And I'm like, okay, they're building a second base early in Zerg v Zerg. Right. Like that is actually a losing strategy. Yep. Um, and they're used to someone like not noticing and like just and it that's like an easy example but i could just tell like 
Oh, that's one I did like, all the time. Like these are not professional strats because right. they're inefficient, and then I can I know how to punish them. Yep. And uh, so it's kind of like like whatever skill I had in StarCraft, it's mostly like that kind of macro oriented thing where it probably came from watching like every freaking pro match that's ever I mean, been. That's how you learn stuff. Yeah. I'm yeah. just like just like I knew when someone was like sort of outside the range of what was uh, maximally powerful strat, and then if they were going to beat me, they would have to like out micro me after I had the army to beat them. And just to give you an idea, just to double down on that same idea, the only game I've ever been like uh, exceptional at, I would say, is Smash Brothers. And mm -hmm. it is like exactly what we're talking It is only yeah. what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. It is all like, I'm looking at you, I see you're going to do that, duh, duh, duh. it's all timing, right? Yeah, see, just thinking about that gives, gives me some anxiety. Like, I'm like, I oh, I, there's no way I could ever be that good. And no, I you, you can. I mean, probably I would. I just don't. I had to start watching the pros, Smash yeah. other players, and like figure out like what I needed to know. Um, but still, like there's something about that. I have pretty fast fast reaction speed, um, so probably I could be a micro player. But there's just something in me that like just I, I never wanted to. Like, yeah, it's just not the thing I enjoy. I think that everyone can learn the reaction speed, right, and the speed of doing your moves. I think what then differentiates you into becoming exceptional from that point is when is the people once you get the ability to do something and then still be doing what you're doing and look at what they're doing and then guess correctly what they will do next and then do the thing that counters that before they do it and if, if that is what makes you like like I would play with people who weren't as good and it wasn't like oh he's beating them it was like they aren't landing a hit you know because you're just like mm, you're gonna do that you're gonna do that you're gonna do that and it's like chess in that way right like the a great chess player isn't doesn't like, like... the ultimate speed chess like, right like right super fast they um, used to use uh, Starcraft for that actually where they would they would they used to like monitor the brains of people playing chess and they switched to Starcraft apparently because it is, it is, I think, a lot similar in that way, too. So uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, is there anything? <laughs> should we end on a serious note? That's kind of my brand. Okay. Uh, hmm. We can do that. How do we end on a serious note? Okay, maybe not a serious note, but okay. um, yeah. is there anything that you would say to people listening to this to sort of put a bow on it yeah I would say um, let me think I got multiple things maybe even I would say first thing is if I want to put a bow on it uh, I think if you try and spend all your time avoiding suffering that'll be the best way to find a lot of it and not the kind you want and in that vein I think that hardship is I don't think anything worth doing is easy and I think avoiding hardship is probably well like I was saying that's probably the best way to have a terrible life now I don't mean terrible like you'll be like a dictator I mean terrible like it'll just be ash in your mouth you know like I don't think you can it'll work out <laughs> um, and in that same line of reasoning uh, I think you should seek out the person crying in the corner and the person struggling and the person is different and you know use your strength for mercy rather than for your own uh elevation right and and i, I even though i don't think that that's the point 
I do believe it will end up being more rewarding for you in the end. Firmly, strongly believe that. But it will be hard as shit. Yeah. Yeah, there. That's my bow. That's good bow, Matt. Thanks, man. Listen there. Good talking to you. You too, buddy. Love you.